Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Hunter. I'm one of the lay elders here, and I'm probably the first one that brought a Dunkin' Cup up here to the pulpit. So starting off to a, to a good start. Um, but yeah, so my name's Hunter. I'm one of the lay elders here, uh, and it's my privilege to uh, share with you God's Word today. Um, I do want to start um, not with our passage for today, though. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. We talk about it a lot. It says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Um, we at the Oaks believe that verse. And so today we're continuing our series through uh, our summer series called Verses That Changed My Life. But we believe 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. So really, any verse could change your life. Um, any verse God could use to radically transform your life um, in the way we're going to see today. Um, every verse proclaims the glories of God. Um, but at the same time, it, it does seem like there's a couple verses uh, that just seem to drip a, a little bit of an extra measure of glory or that we really hold on to a lot tighter than some of the other um, scriptures we come across. And so one of those uh, for me is found in the first half of Romans 5. Um, now, T.L. mentioned this earlier in the members meeting, but uh, if you recall, if you've been around for a while, uh, we have actually uh, been going through Romans as part of our fall uh, sermon series. And so we, if you have a really good memory, actually ended in Romans 5 uh, last December. Um, Jimmy actually preached on our passage today, and he preached on uh, our justification and its benefits, because that is what the text is about. Um, but I'm not preaching the same sermon that Jimmy is preaching. Um, truth be told, I couldn't do it half as well as he did. I would highly encourage you to go listen to it on uh, the YouTube page. Um, I'm not going to preach the same sermon he did, though I'm in the same passage. But at the same time, I'm not at liberty just to say whatever I want to. I can't just insert into the text what I want to say and go with it. Um, we are an expository church, and by that we believe that 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 is true, um, that every scripture is breathed out by God. And so we, believing that, understand it to be our responsibility to explain everything in the scriptures as it was given to us, not as we want it to say. That is, that is our role up here on a Sunday morning. So I'm not at liberty just to do whatever I want to do up here. I have to explain what the text says. Um, and so in light of that, um, I want to, instead of looking at the whole passage um, you have in your outlines, I think Romans 5, 1 through 11, I want to focus on just one verse, uh, 19 words, Romans 5, 8. We're going to spend pretty much all of our time in Romans 5, 8 today. And so to kind of give an illustration of what I want to do, um, I'm going to tell you a story. If you know me, I, I really like to tell stories. Um, it's a common characteristic of me. Um, so a few years ago, I went with a friend to a state park uh, in Pennsylvania that's known for its dark skies um, and stargazing. And actually, while you're there, you can see the whole Milky Way galaxy just streaked across the sky. It's beautiful. And so the first night we were there, uh, my friend and I just kind of laid out in the field and, and looked up um, and just pointed out constellations and, and other groupings of stars. It was, it was amazing. Um, and that's kind of what it's like to look at a passage at large, to, to take in its main point and its themes and process a whole passage. Um, but today, uh, I want to focus in. And so actually, the second night at the state park, we were there. Um, the, the 
park rangers brought out, they rolled out on these big carts, giant expensive telescopes um, for visitors to use. That was my privilege, it was free to use. And so uh, I walked up to one of these telescopes and the park ranger said, if you look through this one, you will see Jupiter. And so I walked up to it, who doesn't want to see Jupiter? And I, I looked into the eyepiece and what a moment ago was just one little star among the many, all of a sudden was this giant, fiery red planet with stripes and moons and a great red spot. That's what I want to do today, is to, in the same way where you look through a telescope and see a planet or a star become a planet, I want to look at Romans 5.8 under a microscope and see all of the detail that is there. Um, I want us to ruminate on the amazing love of God. That is what our passage is about. Romans 5.8 is about the love of God. I want you to focus on and just ruminate on the amazing love of God for sinners in Christ. Um, it's important to know that this passage is not something to simply just know. We're not here just to, to have head knowledge about the love of God. We're here to have it to experience love, the love of God. Um, God's love is not something just to know about and be able to write about, but something to experience and live out. So whether this is the first time or the thousandth time that you've been through Romans, uh, as I'm sure many of you have in many Bible studies, um, be amazed at the love of God. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and flip to Romans chapter 5. We're going to read all 11 verses, but we're really going to focus on Romans 5.8. So the word of the Lord says, starting in chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll discuss this verse. Father, uh, we are here to worship You and we are here to um, learn about You and to love You. And God, I pray that You would um, show us Your glory in the same way that Moses sought to see Your glory, that we would see Your glory in, in the unfolding of Your love for us in Christ. Um, God, that we would see Your gospel as a beautiful diamond um, that we never get tired of. 
And God, we would see that the unfailing and unmeasurable depths of your love are always present and always real. So God, I ask you to show us more of yourself in these, these words, I pray. In Christ, amen. So, we are, again, picking up in Romans 5 today. And so, if you recall from last fall, we, we started in Romans 1 and went all the way up to the end of 5, and next week we'll be in Romans 6. So, I'm kind of like the stepping stone in many ways. So, let's recap for a minute what, what has been happening up till this point. Um, so, Paul has spent several chapters establishing and evidencing that justification, the, the declaration that we stand right before God, is by faith alone. He has spent the first number of chapters um, arguing that and evidencing that reality. And now here in chapter 5, he's beginning to detail the current and future benefits that we have in Christ because of that justification. What, what does it mean that we are justified before Christ? What do we get? Well, these are the benefits. And so he describes such things as peace with God, access to the grace of God, joy in suffering and tribulation, a hope of the glory of God, otherwise an expectant to be welcomed into His presence. And he says these things won't prove empty. He says this hope that you have is not going to prove void. It's a, it's a real hope that you can trust in and, and take to the bank, basically. And why? He says because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, we can be confident in the benefits of justification because the catalyst of that justification is God's love. And the administer of that love is the Holy Spirit who has been permanently given to us to take up residence with us. But Paul continues. You see, he could have ended at 5 and then jumped straight down to verse 9, and it would have made perfect sense in his logical argument. But there's verses 6 through 8. There's this interlude that occurs. And it's almost as if there, there's a, an unspoken question between verses 5 and 6 that says, how do I know that God's love will endure? You see, he says, you can be confident in your hope because God's love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. And then there's this unspoken question, but how do I know that God's love is not going to go away? How do I know that this present and felt love that I'm experiencing right now is, isn't just temporary? How do I know he's not going to retract that love or, or take his spirit back and I'm going to be left where I start? How do I know that God's love is forever? See, verses 6 through 8 answers this what if question. What if God is like that? I mean, we all know people. We all know that people disappoint. We all know many people who, who have said that they've loved us and have disappointed us. And, and this unspoken question is what if God is like that? And Paul says, he's not. <laughs> he's not at all. What if God is like that? Verses 6 through 8 answers that question by showing what human love, its limits are, but then also the heights that God's love reaches to, the, the giant chasm between our love and God's love. And that takes us to verse 8 where we read, but God demonstrates His love, unlike people, unlike unreliable people, God demonstrates His love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let's dig into that verse a little bit and, and just go through the pieces of it. I really want to just wring this out for everything that is in it. So when you read but God, and we, we start out the but 
God, and, and you hear God, and you're reading through Romans, and, and Paul is talking about God the Father and, and says, God, who comes to mind? Who, who are you thinking about? Are you, are you thinking about um, the God of the Bible that we read about throughout the Scriptures, or, or are you thinking about a God that, that you're trying to understand who He is? You've kind of concocted Him yourself. Um, is it the same God that we read about in Psalm 136? And the psalmist says, This is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, who alone does great wonders, who by understanding made the heavens, who spread out the earth above the waters and made the great lights, the sun and the moon and the stars, who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, who brought Israel out from among them, who parted the Red Sea in two and overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, who led his people through the wilderness. We're talking about the same God in, in Romans 5, 8. It is the same God who descended in fire and stood before Moses and, and burned up a mountain with his glory. It is the same God who dwelled in unapproachable light and terrified Isaiah that we saw just two weeks ago. It is the same God who cast down fire and burned up a, a wet offering before Elijah that you probably just read in your reading um, plans. It's the same God that we read about from Genesis to Revelation that we are seeing here in Romans 5.8. He's not aged. He's not lost a day of his memory. He hasn't worn out. He is still being worshipped by the seraphim. His glory train still fills the throne room. He is still holy. He is still being worshipped as holy, holy, holy. This is the God Paul is talking about in Romans 5.8 when he says, but God. He's talking about the holy God, the powerful God, the just God. And he says this God is loving towards creatures who are sinful. So I mentioned that this is the same God that descended in fire before Moses, and, and um, T.L. opened reading through that passage. I want to go there again briefly. If you want to flip to Exodus 34, I highly encourage you to do so. So surrounded by fire and wind on Mount Sinai, Moses asked God to see his glory, to know him and see him in his rawest of essence. God, I want to know you truly. And Scripture says that God answered his request. It says God descended in fire and stood with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And that's where we get in Exodus 34. We're going to start in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. It just closed, but that's okay. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Keeping steadfast love with thousands, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the Father to the third and the fourth generation. As a side note, if anyone ever says to you that the God of the Old Testament is not loving, he's kind of mean and unapproachable and cruel, just go to Exodus 34. This is kind of like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It's actually quoted almost 30 times in the Old Testament that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast loving kindness. Just a side note, I'm kind of equipping your tool belt there, I guess. 
so Moses asks to God, show me your glory. And God says, I'll show you my glory. So he descends and he stands with him there. And what does he say? He says, I am holy. I am righteous. I do not permit evil. I do not tolerate evil. And, not but, and I am gracious and merciful, slow to anger, patient and abounding in steadfast love. So there's an important doctrine to remember here. It's called the simplicity of God. That God is, it doesn't mean he's dull or, or dim-witted or anything like that. It, it means that he is a, of one whole being. It, he's not the composite of his many attributes. He is all of his attributes in totality, all the time, in every way, shape, and form. So he's not sometimes gracious and sometimes loving and sometimes just. Every act of his justice is loving, and every act of his love is just. And so actually earlier when I read to you from Psalm 136, uh, I only read half of it to you. Um, you see between each of the psalmist's recountings of, of the previous acts of God, he interposes a celebration of the demonstrated love of God. So Psalm 136 actually reads, give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone has done great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, the sun and the moon and the stars, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, to him who brought Israel out from among them, to him who divided the Red Sea in two and overthrew Pharaoh and his whole host, his steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist here knows of the simplicity of God. He knows that you can't separate the love of God into just a few categories and boxes and bins, but that everything God has ever done has demonstrated his love to us. The God of, of, of Romans 5.8 is this same God, and everything that he has ever done to us and for us is in a demonstration of his righteousness and his love. But Paul doesn't go to creation. He doesn't go to the Exodus. He doesn't go even to the bringing out the, the exiles um, that we read about towards the end of the Old Testament. He doesn't go to any of those, but he could. He could very well go to any of those things that God has done to prove that God's love is unfailing and forever. God has demonstrated his steadfast love in every single thing that he has done. In fact, the fact that you're sitting here is a demonstration of God's abiding steadfast love but he doesn't go to any of those things. What does he go to? He says God demonstrates his love in this, supremely in this, as in this one way surpasses every single other way that God demonstrates his love, in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the supreme demonstration of God's love. Um, you'll notice also that the verb here, that is used. It doesn't say that God once demonstrated his love. It doesn't say that he has demonstrated love. It says he continued. He, he demonstrates now and in the present, today and tomorrow, God is demonstrating his love to us, towards sinners. Why does Paul put this in the present tense? He puts the cross in the past tense, that Christ has died. He puts sinners in the past tense, that we were sinners, but he puts this, that God's demonstrating his love in the present tense. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because this is the ministry of the Spirit that he talked about in verse 5. 
what is the Spirit doing? He, he's pointing to Christ. He's pointing to what Christ has done to constantly demonstrate the abiding love of God. Paul says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit. Paul, elsewhere, if, if many people love Ephesians, especially Ephesians 2, but Ephesians 1 is, is very similar to our passage here in Romans. Paul calls the Holy Spirit the guarantor of our inheritance. And he goes on to pray for believers who have the Spirit, and he, he prays that they would be given a greater measure of the Spirit so that they would have, quote, their eyes of their hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope that you've been called to. It's very similar to our passage here, isn't it? That you may know the hope that you've been called to. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance? The hope that we have in the glory of God. And what is His immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might, worked in Christ? It's always in Christ. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God's love demonstrated in Christ on the cross has always been and will always be the seal of our assurance of all of God's promises towards us, and that is what the Spirit is doing, pointing to that, to Christ. That's why you can have assurance of everything that God has promised. See, we never move on from the cross. We never move on from, from these things that this is the bedrock foundation of our faith. What is happening on the cross? Who is Christ? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you want assurance of your peace and your joy and your hope? Do you want to know and feel that, that sufferings and pains and anxieties aren't terminal things and that a life devoted to Christ is actually worth it? Do you want to know that God's love is truly from everlasting to everlasting without fail or clause for you? Look at Christ. There is no greater demonstration of God's unfailing love towards you than in Christ. Behold Christ on the cross while we were still sinners. See, God's love is not primarily experienced in you know, the great melodies that we sing, although we love to sing the songs. He's not experienced primarily in you know, a euphoric encounter at a retreat or in having the grades or, or the salary or the health or the schedule that we want. It's primarily experienced in, in knowing this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If anyone's keeping a running count of how many times I've, I've reset Romans 5.8, Give it to me at the end. I'd love to know. So why is this the supreme manifestation of God's love towards us? Why is this the way that His love is demonstrated towards us? What's in the verse? It's because we were sinners. It's because we were sinners. Is, that's when God loved us. And it's not after we were sinners. It's while we were still sinners. In other words, God could not have given more to get less than this. There's not more God could have done for sinful people than send His own Son to die for them. And there's not less He could have gone after than sinful people created in His own image. And this is actually the logic of verse 7, uh, 6 and 7, if you back up. Paul says that your life is the most important thing that you have, and so the general human experience is that on average, we don't really die for most things. It takes a lot to get us to willingly die for something or someone. It's only in very rare circumstances and for really good reasons that we'll lay down our life for someone else. The contrast comes with the but God. But God, in a way far and above what any human could 
conceive of or achieve demonstrates his love in sending Christ to die for those who offer absolutely nothing in return, who want nothing to do with him, and who despise him to the core of their souls. You see, this is all of us apart from Christ. This is not just some of us. All of us have sinned. So I want to make two observations about this. When Paul says that while we were still sinners, I think there's two really important notes to make here. First, he's talking about people. Paul's talking about sinful people. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that it's impossible to have sin without people. You you can't have people and then sin over here by itself without people. You'll often hear the phrase that God loves the sinner and, and, and hates the sin. It's only kind of a partial truth because it tries to draw a distinction between sin and, and sinners. But you can't have sin without people. Sin isn't like a, a, you know, a splatter that you have on your arm or a glob that's stuck to your back. It, it describes the condition of a heart in rebellion to God. And so when, when Paul says that God demonstrates his love for sinners, it's not people that just have some sin attached to them. It's people who are enemies and opposed to God. Sin isn't an object in of itself. It's, it's a state of a human heart. And so all people by default are sinners, and it's our inherited nature apart from the redeeming grace of God. And so that's what Paul means when he says that we were still weak there in verse 6. The second note I'd like to make is the implied amazingness of the fact that God would love sinners. You see, by default, sinners deserve condemnation. That's kind of the, the running assumption behind this, that it should amaze us that God would love sinful people, because by default, that shouldn't be true. See, the whole premise of this verse and Paul's logic is that this doesn't make sense to us, um, and that's kind of true, because the, the great tension of the Bible is how, how can God have relationship with sinful people? How can He restore a relationship to people who, who have sinned against Him? How can a holy God be in relationship with a sinful people? So that's where we have Exodus 34. You see this so clearly in Exodus 34, it almost makes your head spin, um, where he says that God forgives, God's proclaiming himself, he says, I forgive all kinds of sin, transgression, and iniquity, but I will by no means clear the guilty. That doesn't make sense to us. That should make you scratch your head and wonder, how is that possible? Those two things seem so far apart. See, we naturally struggle to harmonize those two things. How can a holy God forgive sin? If we've all sinned, and all sin is against God, and all sin grieves the heart of God, and God is just, as that verse says in Exodus 34, then the only natural conclusion is that all sinners would, would expect condemnation. And this is the great tension of the Bible. But thankfully, this great tension finds a resolution in what we call the great exchange. The great tension makes way for the great exchange. Christ for us. This is the end of Romans 5.8. God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You can insert there, in our place. Christ for us. You see, forgiveness isn't just forgetting. It, it, to forgive someone doesn't mean just to forget them. See, if you have five dollars and you lend it to somebody and they don't pay you back and you say, hey, you owe me five dollars and they say, I'm sorry, I can't pay you and you say, I forgive you. 
It doesn't just mean the $5 disappear. That means you've absorbed the debt on yourself, that you have taken on the cost of that $5 against your own self. And so for God to forgive us doesn't mean that our sin just magically disappears. It means that He Himself has absorbed the debt of our sin. And so if you just flip back to Romans 3 real quick, this could have also been the passage that I picked today, but I didn't. I was really tempted. Um, But if you go back to Romans 3, starting in verses 21, this is where we see this great exchange of God taking on the debt of our own sin for us. So Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Everyone knows this next verse. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift, but not magically, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation kind of means satisfaction or appeasement. This has satisfied the full measure of God's wrath. This was to show God's righteousness because... Sorry, I lost my place there for a second. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. How can God love sinful people and still remain just simultaneously? It's the cross of Christ. How can God forgive sin and yet not leave the guilty unpunished? The death of Christ. How can we simultaneously be born sinners and yet fully expect, stand in full confidence and have no doubts at all that we will be accepted by God in His love? The death of Christ. The death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, while we were under condemnation and deserving of death, Christ, the perfect Son of God, stepped into our place, having no sin in of Himself, and joyfully went to the cross, enduring it for our own sake, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that we who knew no sin, or sorry, that we who who have sin, by the one who knew no sin, would become the righteousness of God of God and have full confidence in His unfailing love for us. This is how we stand confident that God loves us, that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And this is the gospel. So now what does all of this mean for you? We talk about the gospel a lot. You know, we could talk about the love of God in Christ all day. I I would love to just do that. That'd be great. But how does it actually affect our lives if we just talk about it, but it doesn't do anything? What, what is the point? Um, well, I think there's two general categories of applications that can be made here. It's kind of the, the same two categories that you can use anywhere in the Bible. It's how we relate to God and, and how we relate to um, other people created in His image. It's the love of God, love of neighbor. Those, those two categories can kind of be applied everywhere. And so um, we're going to look at how this affects those two relationships how we relate to God, and how we relate to others created in His image. So first, how we relate to God. What, is, what does Romans 5.8 mean for us in our relationship with God the Father who sits in heaven high and holy up there? 
Well, that's kind of the main focus of, of, of Romans 5 in general. This whole chapter is about the justification that we have experienced and we have with God, and that we as believers now have peace with God, and that we can be confident in the love that we have experienced, and that we can also be confident in the salvation on that day when He comes to judge every creature. So if you are wrestling with the assurance of your salvation, that, that assurance of the salvation of the day when Christ comes again, or if you are struggling with, with the guilt that, that sin brings, if you're struggling with the same sin constantly and it's just bearing down on you, well, I would encourage you to take your eyes off of yourself and what you're doing and look at Christ on the cross who died for you while you were in sin. Not because you brought anything to the table, and so if you are struggling with assurance of, of salvation or if you're struggling with the guilt of sin, Romans 5, it's kind of like a window into God's own heart to see His unfailing, abounding, enduring love for you in Christ. You'll notice that the subjects of God's love in this verse are described again in the past tense, that while we were sinners, though once characterized by sin, all who fall under the name of Christ, who have believed in the name of Christ, are no longer identified by that sin. We are now children of God. That is our new identity, our new characteristic trait. Not the sin that once defined our entirety of our being, but that we are in Christ. And so if you have believed in Christ and you, you have placed your faith in Him and you continue to trust in Him, He is your identity, not your sin. If you're struggling to feel the presence of God, in, in your daily devotions, or in your prayer, or just in life, or even as you just sit right here, right now. You don't need to move on from the cross. You don't need to look anywhere but right here at Romans 5.8. And so Romans 5.8 is kind of like a warm campfire to keep you warm through the night until morning comes and the joy returns. This is all you need to look at to know that Christ loved you while you were in sin, and it won't go away. If everything's going right for you, um, if you would consider yourself an example or a model of Christ-likeness and others look to you as an example, you're a leader in young life or you lead an MC, don't let it go to your head. Everything that's good about us, everything praiseworthy about us is from Christ and through Christ and to Christ. And we know this because there's nothing we brought to our salvation. He died for us while we were still sinners. Romans 5.8, for you there, for is like a compass reminding you that God didn't send His Son so that everyone could look at you, but so that everyone could look at Christ and, and bow their knees and with their tongues confess that He is Lord. And if you're just visiting today and you, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or if you've been coming here for a while, or if you have no idea, you have no experience with the, the kind of love that we've been talking about through Romans 5, 8, well then this is, this is kind of like a no outlet sign that you're looking at. You see, every person is a sinner, and every sinner stands condemned before God. We're all very familiar with John 3.16. I'm sure 98% of you could probably quote it, that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's true. That's 100% true. And we love that verse. It's good for more than just mugs and t-shirts. It's good to live by and trust and pray through. But John 3.18 is equally true, which says, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. That's good news. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because 
Why is he condemned already? Because he has not believed in the only name of the Son of God. So here's your invitation, friend, who doesn't, if you don't know the love of God, now trust in Christ, repent of your sins, and believe in him, and trust him, and follow him, and trust that that love will not put, be put to shame. And lastly, to all Christians um, who are following him, this verse in many ways is, is a proof text for one of, one of the many okisms we have here. Um, if you're familiar with okisms, they're just sayings that we say quite frequently to one another. And so this one, I might have the words a little bit off, but goes something like this. God loves you enough to meet you where you are, but too much to let you stay there. See, God demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners, but that love always results in turning from sin, fleeing sin, and pursuing Christ. See, John the Apostle writes that we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. This is not to say that we're immediately perfect. John also says that if we say we don't have any sin, we're, we're just lying to ourselves. But he's saying that we cannot continue to just ignore sin. The one who has taken on the identity of Christ, who has believed in Christ for their salvation, cannot just turn a blind eye to sin. You can't be indifferent to sin because the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian knows that it was my sin that held him there. And, and in the words of that, that song, how deep the Father's love for, for us. It was my sin that held him there. It was my sin upon his shoulders. It was my sin that killed the Son of God. And it was my sin that held him up there. Therefore, follow Christ, you who call yourself a Christian, and put off sin, looking to Christ as your example. So let's continue now on to the application of, of how we relate to other people. So we just looked at how we relate vertically with God. How does Romans 5.8 inform our relationships horizontally? I think most importantly, it does this. You have no warrant to look at any person on the face of the planet and think yourself better than them in any way, shape, or form. The only one worth comparing to, the, you know, the only one that you, you should actually be concerned about comparing yourself to is Christ. And I, I guarantee you, he wins every time. That's why he's the example for us to strive after and why he's the only one who could have who died in our place. And so the only distinction that really matters in all of the world is if you're in Christ or out of Christ, not in Christ, have not believed in Christ. And that distinction has nothing to do with anything intrinsic to you. Therefore, you have no warrant to look at anybody and think yourself higher or mightier or nobler than them. If God had not so loved the world, if Christ had not so willingly laid down his life, if the Spirit had not so joyfully taken up residence with us, then we would all be dead in sin. And we would have only the expectation of, of curse to misery and doom to destruction. See, the Christian knows how much he has been forgiven of. Um, if you're a fan of the Gospels, as I am, the, the four that start the New Testament, um, you're probably familiar with many of, of the parables of Jesus, and uh, several of his parables talk directly to this subject. How do we relate to people around us in light of the fact that we have been forgiven? So I, I want to go to just one of those really quickly. Matthew records that Peter came up to Jesus. I'm going to give you the NLT version here real quick, and 
uh, Peter says, hey Jesus, how many times can my brother sin against me before I have to stop forgiving him? It's like seven times. And, and Jesus says, how about 77 times? How about a thousand times? How about a million times? The point is that stop counting and, and forgive him. And so he, he went on to, to tell this parable of the unforgiving servant. So I'm going to read this all to you. So Jesus said, in light of that to Peter, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is a reasonable amount. The 10,000 talents is, is an absurd, unrealistic amount. The hundred denarii is a lot, but it's realistic. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have mercy on me. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. There's a lot of irony present in this passage, isn't there? The one who was just forgiven so much is now unconcerned with forgiveness. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went out and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also, this is the summary. This is the lesson embedded in this parable. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. A humble and forgiving and kind demeanor is to be characteristic of God's children. Forgiveness is what we've been shown. It's what we are to show to others. And so if you're married, there is nothing your spouse can do to you that it cuts deeper than the sin you, you've done to God. So love your spouse as Christ has loved you. Parents, your children will never be as rebellious to you as you have been to God. Therefore, be kind to your kids as God has been kind to you. Christian, we, we all have friends and we all have family and we all have acquaintances. We have all of these relationships with people who are very off-putting and reviling, who love sin and we just don't like to be around. But the only difference between you and them is the grace of God. If it were not for God's grace, there would be no difference. See, Christ has loved you with an immeasurable, holy, and righteous love. We know that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Therefore, love others as you have been loved. And lastly, Christian, every single person in this church who calls himself a Christian has come through the same doors. There's not multiple avenues into the kingdom of God. There is one door, there is one gate, there is one man who stands in the middle, and that's Christ. And he is the only one that we have all come in here through. 
And so remember that that member over there that you don't know, that you don't like to spend time with, Christ shed his blood for them too. For the new Christian and for the old Christian, for everyone in the middle, Christ died for them too. Therefore, love your brothers and sisters in Christ as Christ has loved you. So we know that love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way, and it is not irritable. This is what it means to love your brothers and sisters as Christ has loved you. So John the Apostle, known as the Apostle of Love, um, because he talks about it so much, in his first epistle, I would encourage you to read it if you have not, um, in the fourth chapter, he gave this call to the Christians he was writing to. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. It's impossible to call yourself a Christian and not love. Because God is love. And this, in this, the love of God was manifest to us, among us. By this, God has demonstrated His love to us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. So therefore, I'll reiterate kind of the main point of this. Be amazed at the love of God. Be amazed at the love that God has shown you in Christ when you were still in sin and know that that is the defining trait of the Christian. One who has been redeemed by Christ in the love of God and is now to live in light of that. Be amazed at the love of God. 